Now to the next uh, next presentation, uh, and we're delighted uh, to to uh, I suppose hear what the man problem is about, in particular. Uh, Dr. Imo Tool with Susan Cal. But first of all, I'd like to uh, introduce an extraordinary journalist, uh, an uh, extraordinary advocate uh, of, uh, uh, of clarity for us, whether it's reporting in, uh, in the Irish Independent on, on legal issues or indeed clarifying for us what the major issues are to do indeed with any referendum, whether it's the marriage equality referendum or the, the debate around the Eighth Amendment. So please uh, uh, give warm welcome to Derville MacDonald. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, ladies. Welcome to the problem as well, gentlemen. Um, welcome to the man problem, a thought-provoking, if provocative title, um, if ever there was one. Um, the context, of course, is the forthcoming or potential repeal of the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution. And what I want to do just before um, I invite uh, our performers out is to just bring you on a very, very quick three-minute tour um, through the history of the Eighth Amendment. I want you to travel back in time with me because we may have overseas visitors here today who don't know about the context of the Eighth Amendment. We have young people in the audience who perhaps don't know about the history. And there'll be many of you there who in the 33 years that we've been dealing with the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution might forget some of the key uh, landmark times. So I want to bring you back and look at it through my eyes. It's 1983 and I'm six. Article 40.3.3 is inserted into the Irish Constitution. It gives equal uh, protection to the right to life of the mother and the unborn. The unborn is a new word. It's not defined. It's not clarified. It's not given status. Many, many people warn, this is a new term. It needs clarity. How can we give protection to something that we haven't defined? Those warnings are ignored. Peter Sutherland, who was then the Attorney General, warned of a time bomb waiting to happen. And true to form, ladies and gentlemen, ever since then, 33 years ago, the cluster munitions factory that is the Eighth Amendment has been exploding at regular intervals ever since. 1992, I'm 15, I'm just a few months older than X, a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant um, as the result of a rape. You'll all be familiar um, with that story. The formula that the Supreme Court came up in that case, ultimately she did not travel to the UK for a termination, was that where there is a threat to the life as distinct to the health of the mother, um, termination of pregnancy is lawful in this country. That case, if you want, gave birth to what is known as the suicide clause, which twice uh, the people of this country in a referenda have refused to remove. Niall McCarthy, the late Supreme Court judge in that case, berated the government. He said it's almost 10 years now since 1983 and you still haven't introduced any legislation. What would he think of the fact that it took 30 years? 1996, across the road, I'm in Trinity. I'm a first year law student and the Constitution Review Group calls on the government to clarify the legal position of the unborn. It's not strictly to do with termination of pregnancy. It's just that there's new technologies coming on board at that time. IVF, surrogacy, technologies not yet conceived at that time but which ultimately came uh, later, such as stem cell research and other issues which challenge the, the ethical, legal, the social and religious norms. The clock ticks, ladies and gentlemen, the alphabet soup of women and young girls facing crisis pregnancy proceeds apace. 2005, the Commission of Assisted Human Reproduction again voices its concerns, again seeks legal clarity, again there's no legislation, again no definition of the unborn is forthcoming. And what's ironic for me to take a little bit of a pause on this runaway tour through the Eighth Amendment is that when it was introduced in 1983, the fear at that time was that in the UK, citing the Roe versus Wade case, there was a fear that judicial 
uh, through judicial activism, abortion would be brought in by the back door, as it were. And one of the ironic things for me, as a woman and as somebody who covers the courts, is that the irony is that we absolutely devolved all responsibility for the Eighth Amendment to the judicial arm of government and not to the political arm. Thousands of babies had been born happily uh, through IVF by the time the frozen embryo case hit the Supreme Court in 2006. This involved a dispute between an estranged couple over the fate of their frozen embryos. And again, in that case, we got some clarity actually in that case as to when um, protection of the unborn might be triggered by Article 40.3. But again, the judiciary in that case are saying, this is not our job, it's not up to the courts, it's up to the politicians, and nothing happened. 2006 was a very, very funny year, in a way, um, for the government to um, be doing nothing about it, because that's the year they told the European Court of Human Rights. They successfully blocked a case at that time going forward. It was a case involving a woman who had twins, one of whom had died, the other um, who had a, a lethal um, abnormality. And in that case, the government blocked the admission of that case to the European Court of Human Rights because it said, look, wait, wait, wait. It's arguable that if the unborn has no prospect of life, what we now know as fetal, fetal abnormality, that Article 40.3.3 won't apply. So listen, don't worry about that. Our courts will deal with that. And the European Court of Human Rights, in good faith, said, you're right, it's, it's impossible. Sure, no court would decide a case with remorseless logic. And I'll leave that one with you. A few months later, ladies and gentlemen, it's 2007, and I'm sitting in Buswell's Hotel in Dublin interviewing Miss D, a 17-year-old girl who's a, who had an Catholic pregnancy. Um, she was 17, and I sat in Buswell's just days before she travelled over to the UK for a medical termination of her pregnancy, that the court case that I had followed, that I'd written about, had destroyed her, how she didn't want to travel, and how she said that all she wanted was a birth certificate so that she could bring her unborn home and bury it here. It's things like that in my journalism career that stick with me. Two years later, I'm in uh, Strasbourg and the ABC case, um, and it was extraordinary. The, the Irish government were arguing in that case, and I was looking through my notes, and it just said in the Council of Europe that in 30 cases there were absolutely no restrictions um, on women who wanted termination of pregnancies. For health and well-being reasons, you could get it in 40 countries, and for well-being alone, you could get it in 35. Each country, of course, enjoys a very, very wide margin of appreciation in this regard. But what struck my attention as I was beavering away writing was the lead counsel for the Irish government who got up and he said, there's a clear and bright blue line in Irish law which is neither difficult to understand nor apply when it comes to saving the life of a pregnant woman. And I remember thinking, really? A clear and bright blue line for any woman who has ever peed on a stick? I'm wondering, will it be a clear and bright blue line? Will it be something else? Will it bring her joy? Will it bring her sorrow? Will it bring her hope? Or will it bring her fear? And I remember thinking how unfortunate it was that that clear and bright blue line was deployed by the Irish government. It takes a little bit while for rulings to come through, but the ink was barely dry on that ruling in the ABC case, um, which was successful only in respect of one of the women, um, because we didn't have clarity as to when you could actually um, invoke your rights under Article 40.3. But the ink was barely dry on that in 2012, when Savita Halepanavar died. Um, a tragic, tragic maternal death, um, many complications, um, not solely due to um, the legal landscape, but certainly the legal landscape and the lack of clarity did subsequent inquiries find play a role. And it was Savita Halepanavar's death which gave birth, which accelerated the implementation of legislation to give effect to the X case 30 years after the 1983 amendment. That was the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act, which was singular for its absolute exclusion 
of the women the Irish government said would never be subjected to remorseless logic, and that was women and their partners, their husbands, their boyfriends, who had sought terminations uh, for medical reasons. Those women were absolutely excluded from any discussion, as you recall. The sheer insanity of that legislation in many respects, just its unworkability, uh, came to light in the Y case, which involved um, a young asylum seeker who came to Ireland. Um, ironically, in that case, um, she didn't her the, the uh, she didn't receive, she was invoked the Act, the 2013 Act, but it wasn't classified under it because an Irish solution to an Irish problem, her, term, her pregnancy was terminated, albeit by her being forced to um, ha uh, deliver that unborn uh, by cesarean section quite late in the pregnancy. There's one last case before I introduce uh, two stunning voices that I want to share with you, because it's probably one of the one that sticks in my craw that has hurt me, I suppose, most um, in my legal career, in my legal career covering the courts, and that's Christmas Eve 2014. I'm in a cold and bleak courtroom, along with 20 of the finest legal minds in the country, several of my colleagues, as we sat and le listened for two days to the courts deciding the fate of an unborn fetus with absolutely no prospect of life, whose heart was beating inside its dead and rotting mother. And there are many things from that case that haunt me to this day. I think possibly the one that really, really haunts me most is a consultant who talked about how he and two of his colleagues, three of the finest medical minds in this country, found themselves in a room with a copy of the Irish Constitution trying to figure out the Eighth Amendment. It was like some sort of obscene Paddy Irishman joke. Um, but it's a case that has stuck with me um, and one I was just writing about recently just in terms of how the eighth has had an extraordinary effect over all aspects um, of human reproduction and not just termination of pregnancy. We've no laws governing IVF, no laws governing surrogacy. There are new and emerging technologies that are going to challenge us socially, morally, ethically, legally and we've had nothing there. I want to say that we can make no mistake that abortion is a painful issue in Ireland and elsewhere, regardless of where you stand on the spectrum. It has dominated my professional life, it has dominated in some sense my personal life. And one of the common threads throughout all of this is our failure to listen. And our failure to listen to women and young girls in all of their experiences, whether they choose to terminate the pregnancy, whether they don't, whether they choose to go over to UK and have a medical termination of pregnancy, whether they do not, whether they're victims of rape and decide to, pr to proceed with a pregnancy, or they do not. And for me, the worst part of the Eighth Amendment is that here we are 100 years after the rising and the greatest effect that it has is one of censorship. I know for myself that you cannot even raise your head above a parapet, even me as a legal commentator, to speak about it. The absolute vitriol and abuse that is directed at you is shocking, no matter where you stand on that spectrum. Um, two women who are not afraid uh, to speak out on the 8th and to speak about the issues are Susan Cahill and Imer Hutul who are going to give you a wonderful uh, performance on it. It's provocative, it's going to challenge you. I have a little bit of a problem with the title, the man problem, but when we get to the question and answer session afterwards, perhaps we can uh, explore and challenge them then. They are two stunning voices and they're going to challenge you. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Imer Hutul and Susan Cahill. My name is Dr. Imro O'Toole and I am a lecturer in performance studies at the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal. Hello, I'm Dr. Susan Cahill and I'm a lecturer in literature in the School of Irish Studies in Concordia University, Montreal. 
and, and we're, we're here, here to, to argue, argue that, that Ireland's man problem is at the root of our abortion laws. By the man problem, we mean male domination of public discourse. We mean the gendered nature of authority in this country. We mean the ways in which male voices commandeer and control the facts and the fictions told to this nation. Until we face up to the man problem, we will continue to live in a society in which the stories of the approximately 100,000 women who have travelled to the UK to have abortions over the past 20 years will remain untold. Until we wrest the narrative of our, of our bodies back from men, we will not win the abortion rights we need. And the we in this context refers to Irish women, to women of different nationalities passing through or living here, and of course to trans men, to anyone in this country who needs an abortion. Here are some sad statistics from our Republic of Equals. Men comprise 84% of the doll, 72% of radio airtime voices. They comprise 90% of board members of Irish private companies, and in fact, at the time this study was done last year in 2015, there was not a single president or chair of any board of any private company in Ireland. They comprise 79% of broadsheet byline writers, 81% of those at professorial level in university, and in fact, there has never even been a female president of any Irish university. They comprise 80% of the produced screenplay writers in our film industry, 100%, of course, of Catholic bishops, and until Waking the Feminist happened, 90% of the playwrights originally programmed for the Abbey's 2016 uh, centenary commemorations. Every child, woman, and man in this country has been conditioned since birth to associate authority with masculinity to listen when men speak. The man problem is so much a part of the fabric of the way that we live that many, if not most people, do not even notice it. Women have internalized and naturalized their duty to listen, and there is good sociological evidence to show that when women do speak up, when they are successful and authoritative, that they are deemed less likable. An American study can help us to understand this further. This is Heidi Rosen. She is a successful Silicon Valley venture capitalist, so successful that her CV is used as a case study in Harvard Business School. Academics at Harvard Business School split students into two groups as a study, and they gave each group Heidi's CV and her case study, with one important difference. They told one group that Heidi was Harold. Now, both groups uh, deemed Harold and Heidi to be equally competent. However, they decided that Harold was genuine, likable, and kind, whereas Heidi was likely to be, I'll go back, aggressive, self-promoting, and power-hungry. And this is entirely consistent with previous research on gender success and likability. So women know not to speak up, not to seem too authoritative, too successful, because we know that there will be negative social repercussions if we do. Actually, I've got an example that I think speaks to that. Um, I'm not quite finished, actually, Susan, thank you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> men, contrarily, have internalised and naturalised their right to speak over women. 
According to a meta-analysis of 43 studies on the relationship between gender and interruption, men are significantly more likely than women to intrusively interrupt in conversation, and this is uh, particularly pronounced in an observed group. That means a group of three or more people, a group where there is more than just one person listening. And if you would like an illustration of this in the Irish context, simply listen to any episode of George Hook's radio programme. Or, you know, if that sounds like about as much fun as repeatedly poking a rabid bulldog with a stick and listening to it mindlessly bark at you, don't. In short, the man problem lives inside us all. We have all internalized male domination of conversation, of the airwaves, of media, of politics, of religion, of the arts, of Irish public life. And when people do encounter an equal representation of men and women, what many people perceive is an underrepresentation of men. That's interesting, actually, because in my most recent Irish children's literature class, one student gleefully praised the final text, saying, finally, a book about boys. You should definitely keep this on the syllabus because this course is entirely dominated by books about girls. But actually, in fact, seven of the 10 texts that we studied were books about boys. And I think it's telling that after three books in a row about girls, the student perceived the entire course to be girl-dominated. Yeah, but Susan, that's just an anecdote. Well, I think it illustrates no, that's, what you're saying. No, it's hardly saying. representative. It's just your experience. And if we're going to convince people here, we need to deal in facts, figures, statistics. So maybe what happens in your little childhood literature course? Could, You're right. You could I'm, keep I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll stay quiet. Yeah. <laughs> to change a system in which men talk and women are talked over, we need a movement to create space for women's voices, a, a movement that creates space for their stories to be told. And that movement is called feminism. Ireland has a wonderful history of feminist activism, as we heard yesterday from Mary McAuliffe's talk, and it has a wonderful present of feminist activism. There are so many great groups in Ireland working today to achieve greater rights for women, including, and I can only name a few, the National Women's Council of Ireland, the Irish Feminist Network, Free Safe Legal, 5050, and of course, Waking the Feminists. And all of us who are interested in repealing the Eighth Amendment in Ireland need to join these organisations, support them and strengthen them. Because without a strong women's rights movement, we will not win the abortion rights that we need. Abortion is an experience that women have. It happens to their bodies. And if we, as a society, do not care about what women have to say, then it follows that we're not going to value their stories of abortion. Unsurprisingly, there is a link between the liberalization of a country's abortion laws and the strength of its women's rights movement. Now, of course, men can be feminists, great feminists. We saw some on the stage yesterday. Kudos to Lachlan Deegan, even. Um, but the man problem does not just go away inside feminist spheres. And as many seasoned feminist activists and campaigners will tell you, often male involvement does present a problem. This, this is because this internalized sense of entitlement to a privileged platform persists. And men can try to, to grab the mic in a movement that is supposed to be about women's voices. Um, take the upcoming feature film, twice shy, due out later this year. 
twice shy, the pre-publicity states, is going to follow a young couple to the UK because the young woman needs an abortion. Twice Shy is written and directed by Tom Ryan and produced by Fionn Greger. Ryan says that it hopes to explore, and I quote, how an unplanned pregnancy can affect both parties in a relationship. He further explains that the script was written for the likes of Ardell O'Hanlon and Pat Short. The stars play the couple's respective fathers. He also says that he hopes that this film will be non-judgmental, which is very nice of him. So just to recapitulate, we have a film about abortion, which is something that happens to women's bodies, that is written by a man, directed by a man, produced by a man, written for the likes of two male stars to play, and which is primarily concerned about how this young woman's conversation, uh, a decision to have an abortion, affects her relationship with men. And that, my friends, is the man problem. Now, Twice Shy is just one example. It came up in my Twitter feed as we were preparing this talk, but I could point to countless others, countless other examples of men grabbing the mic in a conversation about women's bodies. And when often, and sometimes, when men have the revelation that so many of us do as feminists, that we live in a vastly unequal world, they can fail to look around at the women already trying to remedy this situation, and they can think to themselves, yeah, do you know what? It is unequal, and this movement would be doing a much better job of tackling it if only I was in charge. Actually, that reminds me of a date I was on a few years ago. The guy asked me what I worked on, and I told him, women's writing and feminist theory. Feminism, he said, yes, feminism. I know all about feminism. My ex-girlfriend was a feminist. He then proceeded to explain to me what feminism was, despite my continued insistence that I had a PhD in this shit. Um, a PhD? Are you mad? That's not enough. What you need to be is a man with an ex-girlfriend who's a feminist, or a man with any kind of relationship, meaningful or tenuous, to a woman who's a feminist, or to a woman. A PhD? Are you mad? He did not get a second date. I don't even remember his name. Well, that's a little bit harsh, isn't it, Susan? At least he was trying. Anyway, we've been invited to give an address on the stage of our national theatre, if you can maybe keep your love life out of it, maybe. Yeah, try keep and be it, less personal. Yeah, keep it professional. So, due to the persistence of the man problem, even within the psyches and behaviours of people who consider themselves to be feminists, many of the most successful feminist movements have been those that used women-only spaces and that showed really very little regard for pandering to majority societal opinion. We would not have the vote or contraception if the feminists of the past had made a habit of being polite and pussyfooting around the male ego. Take the second wave American feminist movement of the 70s. They used consciousness-only raising groups, uh, women-only consciousness raising groups, and they, they marched in the streets chanting intentionally provocative and oppositional slogans, such as abortion on demand and without apology. And they got it. We cannot do that in Ireland. We cannot do that because, as Derville has just explained, an amendment equating the life of a woman with that of a blastocyst has been written into our constitution 
and we need a majority vote to change it. According to the Amnesty Red Sea poll from last year, men are significantly less likely than women to support the decriminalization of abortion. In fact, while 68% of women support decriminalization, only 62% of men do. Um, 71%. What? 71% of women I don't do support. Think so. Let's just zoom in. Exactly as I said, 71% of women support decriminalization and 62% of men. So women-only consciousness raising remains important. We're all products of patriarchy. But in Ireland, we also need to find a way to make men listen to women if we want abortion rights. Because at the moment, 84% of the people who are in a position to decide whether or not we even get a referendum on the 8th have no idea what it feels like to miss a period. Well, actually, I do know what it's like to miss a period. I did miss a period. I got pregnant. And I chose not to be. I found out I was pregnant the day after I arrived in Ireland for a month-long visit. And over, just over two years ago in Canada, I got an abortion. I'm just going to stop you there, Susan, because actually you're not part of that group of 5,000 women every year who go to England for abortion. So your story isn't really relevant. So I don't think it's representative. I'm just going to continue. Well, no, if I'm not representative, then neither is someone like the wonderful Tara Flynn or any of the other countless Irish women who go to the Netherlands to seek abortions. I'm Irish. I grew up in this country in which, in a first year philosophy class, we were asked to debate the ethics of abortion. And no one in that class felt comfortable, to, felt comfortable enough to speak except a few men, who were mainly concerned about their lack of control. I found out I was pregnant the day after I arrived in Ireland for a month-long visit. My body endured this geography. Could you just give us a moment? Susan, as your colleague and your friend, are you sure you want to bring this private stuff, these personal matters, into the public sphere in this way? My private stuff is already in the public sphere here. This state wants to control my body. As soon as there was a heartbeat in my belly, I ceased to exist or have any rights. Well, that's very hyperbolic. I mean, it ceased to exist or have any I feel like you're being very emotional, and I can tell you're making people uncomfortable, actually, so... Just give me this clicker. I made this presentation anyway. <laughs> I'm not a statistic. I'm a person, a person with this experience. And I want to tell you what it feels like to see, to, to, I want to tell you what it feels like to feel relief at seeing a little bit of blood in an airplane bathroom, and then the cold fear of a bloodless tampon that I removed in the Paris airport bathroom. Tampons, seriously, Susan, tampons on the Abbey stage now. We're doing tampons. Shut up. That felt good. <laughs> uh, once I arrived in Dublin with my bloodless tampon, I stayed with my really good friend, who was seven months pregnant at the time and delighted to be. In her bathroom, I removed another bloodless tampon. And, quiet, and I concentrated on the cramps that stabbed through my stomach. I was sure that cramps would lead to blood one way or another. My body felt weird. It was really hard to disentangle the jet lag from the exhaustion that dragged up my bones. I felt like I had a constant hangover. Try to decipher these spasms that were dragging through my hips, the feeling that my insides were being dragged into the floor, the 
persistent tugging at the center of me. I tried to figure out if I'd felt that before every month. So I bought a test. I avoided the ones with the smiley faces. I skipped over the ones with blue lines. I needed to see the word. I needed to see the letters and numbers spelling it out. Pregnant, two to three weeks. It seemed inevitable and also utterly impossible. I was instantly nauseous, but actually surprisingly calm. The decision was clear. This wasn't going to happen. I'd always thought that this moment would be a difficult, conflictus and emotional one. I'd broken up with my long-term boyfriend because he didn't want kids, and I did. But faced with this possibility now, my thought process was simple. This isn't going to happen now. I'm not going to do this on my own. I don't want to involve someone who lives really far away. This would make everything too difficult. Work, life, meeting someone else. I wasn't ready to do this alone. Decision made, clear, certain, no vacillation, easy. Not, not easy. I'm in Ireland. I'm home for a month. Ireland doesn't believe in abortion. Ireland believes in the fetus. And not only that, but it was all over the news. Every time you turned on the television or the radio, people were having ludicrous conversations on the subject. This was 2013, and the debates were about what would become the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act. The debates were mind-numbing. How many professionals needed to assess the woman? What constitutes risk to life? And they mainly highlighted how little the state trusts women. The debates made me feel insane. I walked out of rooms a lot. I wasn't suicidal, but forcing me to continue with this pregnancy would not be good for my mental health. My life wasn't under threat, but I still deserve to choose what happens to my body. At that point, I needed to decide, to decide whether I was going to travel to England to have an abortion or wait out the month and have it done back in Canada. My friend who I stayed with was amazing. When I told her my situation, she tells me this story. When Susan told me her news, I understood how trapped she felt. I told her that the miscarriage I'd suffered the previous year was not a miscarriage. I'd had an abortion. I was so happy to be pregnant. We really wanted a child. I'd had an early scan and all was well, so I was optimistic when I went to my obstetrician for my 12-week check. The scan looked bad. The doctor was kind but frank, which I appreciated. It was diagnosed as a fatal fetal abnormality. The baby would not survive, but the heart might continue to beat for weeks or months while the condition worsened. The doctor was clear that pregnancy was not viable. She gave me information about where I could get a termination in the UK and said she would see me again when I got back. She also gave me information about counselling. She even brought me in for another scan the day before I travelled in case the heartbeat had stopped and I wouldn't have to go. It hadn't stopped. I went. I had family support, but I still felt abandoned. The wonderful care I'd been receiving had stopped. 
I was on my own in a foreign country, in an alien system. The staff at the clinic in Liverpool were kind. I remember one was shocked at my case. Others had seen it before. I was charged the Irish rate. The journey home was hard. Grieving, bleeding, weary, angry. I had to wait a few hours before travelling. Weak and barely holding it together, I remember queuing to get on the plane behind a noisy group heading to Dublin for a stag night. Once home I could recover and the system took me back. But my relationship with Ireland has changed. It no longer feels like a safe space for me, for women. When my incredibly brave friend told me her story, it reminded me of a trip I took to Liverpool seven years, several years ago to visit another friend. That friend and I ate and drank our way up and down this wonderful street called Lark Lane. Towards the end of the night, a group of incredible local women adopted us. When they heard our Irish accents, they told us stories of the Irish women who travelled to Liverpool by ferry to have abortions. We call them the empties, they said when they were on their way back. I rang the clinic in Liverpool. The voice at the other end of the line is kind, but businesslike. She asks me a series of questions. She tells me that I'm five weeks pregnant. There's a slight pause when I tell her my current address. She tells me that there's a separate price list for Irish women, that they realise that we've extra costs to bear, and so there's a reduced rate. I remember trying not to cry. England doesn't need to care about us. I explained to her that I live in Canada, that it's covered by my health care, but that I'd have to wait a month. I love her calmness, her matter-of-factness. She's been through this a million times before. She's talked to girls like me before. She tells me that I should wait, that my pregnancy will still be early, that I can go home to the comfort of my own bed afterwards. Her advice slightly relieves me. The thought of booking a flight, finding someone to travel with, travelling, all seem like too much. I'm lucky. I have other options. Canada will look after me. But now I have to be pregnant for a month. I'm fascinated by my body. Everything smells different. My appetites have completely altered. Alcohol makes me gag, especially wine. Beer is almost tolerable because I'm always thirsty. I can't drink enough orange juice. I pee all the time, probably from all the orange juice that I'm drinking. And even my pee smells different. It's dense somehow or complicated. I'm nauseous almost all the time and I need to eat regularly to stop the, the nausea. White bread is my saviour. Toast is a miracle. I can't look at vegetables. I can't even think about fish. I've never known tiredness like this. The world divides into people I will tell and people I can't, which isn't necessarily a judgment on them. It's more a self-protection strategy. My family fall into that latter category, but it's, it's not because I think they're anti-choice. It's that I can't deal with the emotions of telling them right now. It's too much. It's too scary. 
The climate in Ireland makes it difficult for me to talk to my family. I feel distanced from them, and I'm not okay with that. I maintain a mode of wry humour about the whole thing, except for when I want to scream. Sometimes I want to cry. I want to be as far away from here as possible. I want to scratch at the walls. I want my body back. I want to be empty. When I go home to Cork, my mum is delighted to see me and proudly presents me with a Jamie Oliver fish bake, which she knows is one of my favourite meals. Even the thought of fish is making me gag, so I pick around the edges. She notices. She wonders if I have a bladder infection because I'm peeing more than usual, and usual is a lot at the best of times. Um, she watches me from the side of her eye when I say, no, actually, I, I don't want another glass of wine. Actually, I think I'll go to bed before you. Really bad jet lag. I promise to go to the doctor about my bladder infection when I go back to Canada. A member of my extended family is a pro-lifer. She has been campaigning. We go to visit her. My mum and sister are adept at changing the subject. Part of me really wants to have this out with her, that to tell her that this person sitting in her kitchen, drinking her tea, has been failed by people like her. That my case isn't even that traumatic. I'm not suicidal. I haven't been raped. I'm not forced to carry a fetus with a fatal abnormality. I'm going to have a termination and it's going to be the best thing for me. And there will be no shame, no guilt. But of course, I sit in her kitchen, drink her tea, and smile blandly at her religion because she is family. I remember going to get the morning after pill in my early 20s. I remember the barrage of questions. I remember the judgment. I especially remember the female doctor hesitant to prescribe me the morning after pill, asking me, would you not just take a chance? No, I say to her. No, I'm not going to just take a chance, because the consequences of that chance are too big. I've always worried about the other girls she might have said that to. I go back to Canada after a month of enduring the pregnancy and the abortion debates. I've never been so glad to see the back of Ireland. My abortion is scheduled for the day after I arrive, and I go on my own, which is fine. Everyone in the clinic is lovely. The counsellor I speak to is kind and non-judgmental. She runs through a series of questions. She brings me into the surgery, which is bright and clean. I lie on the surgical bed and stare at the ceiling, at a map of the world that they've pasted to the ceiling. I feel thankful to the clinic for providing me with something to look at, even if it mainly makes me stare at my small, conservative island whose geography is such a prison. The nurse administers laughing gas and an intravenous painkiller. Laughing gas is amazing. I feel nothing. I barely remember being taken from the surgical bed to the recovery bed, and that bed feels wonderful until it doesn't anymore. They give me a cookie and some orange juice, and I leave with a friend. The recovery is more than I expected, but I'm lucky. I didn't have to travel. I didn't have to endure queues, check-in, security. I was able to go home to the comfort of my own bed. 
I sleep a lot. I have never been happier to see blood in the toilet. I am fascinated by the blood, by its volume, by its consistency. This blood is beautiful. It means that this is over. The clinic has given me a sheet of paper explaining my procedure to give to a doctor for a checkup. This feels weird. Even though I've no shame about this, the Irish taboo around abortion makes me feel uneasy to see this written in black and white. I cannot bring myself to give this to a doctor. Like so many Irish women, I never go for a checkup. My abortion was not remotely traumatic, but what was traumatic was the month I spent in Ireland being unnecessarily pregnant, feeling trapped and helpless, and that my country did not value me at all. My abortion, I have not regretted my abortion for a second. It was absolutely the right decision for me. But what I do regret is that I didn't feel able to talk to my family about this, that I wasn't able to ask for their help, let them support me. The climate in Ireland made that impossible. The American writer Rebecca Solnit, in her utterly necessary book, Men Explain Things to Me, writes, the story of Cassandra, the woman who told the truth but was not believed, is not nearly as embedded in our culture as the story of the boy who cried wolf, that is, the boy who was believed the first few times he told the same lie. Perhaps it should be. In Ireland, we need to listen to our Cassandras. We need to shift the focus of this conversation to women. Hysteria, hysteric, hysterical. Those Greek words for Cassandra-like women all come from the Greek word for uterus and a condition thought to be caused by wandering wombs. In Ireland, we still have hysterics. Wombs that are forced to wander, women who are not listened to, women who are shamed into silence. Over 5,000 women a year are forced to wander their wombs out of Ireland. In the past 20 years, that's over 100,000 women with stories like mine, stories like the wonderful Tara Flynn and Roisin Ingle and my brave friend and all of the other women with similar stories. They are but drops in a vast ocean, a wave of Cassandras. We need to shift the focus of this conversation to women. So how? Well, we need to break the first rule of the man problem and talk about the man problem. In Ireland, authority is gendered and the narratives of abortion that we are given are largely by men. This is clearly related to our abortion laws. We can't tackle a problem if it is deemed rude or aggressive or shrill to even admit it exists. We need to privilege women's voices. Women get pregnant, not men. On this issue, what women have to say matters more. We need to collaborate. I was invited here to give a talk because I have a public platform as a speaker and a writer, but I've never needed an abortion. So I asked Susan to work with me and she bravely and brilliantly agreed. If you are a man 
and you are in a position to bring a story about abortion into the public realm, ask a woman to work with you. And if your answer to this is, but I'm as good a feminist as any woman, then you are not as good a feminist as any woman. An Ireland in which the narrative of abortion continues to be written by men and controlled by men is not an Ireland ready to afford women dominion over their bodies and their lives. We also found that a good way to get an auditorium of people to listen to a talk on abortion and feminism is to call it the man problem and, and pretend, pretend that it's, it's all, all about men. men. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, you came here to be challenged, right? Um, what you've actually just witnessed and experienced is a precedent in and of itself. This is the first time ever that a first-hand account of an abortion has ever been heard or recited on the Abbey stage. And Susan, you take that uh, distinction. Wearing my legal affairs hat, I'm going to uh, stand in the role as, as the devil's advocate and perhaps ask you this, Eimear. The problem I have with the man problem assumes that if the man problem is out of the way, that women would get what they want. It assumes that there is unanimity amongst women. It assumes that, um, that if the man problem was out of the way, if they didn't have as much of the conversation, the control in terms of legislation and others, but if in fact, if anything, the Protection of Life during Pregnancy Act and other issues shows that women too are uncomfortable and that we might also have what you might perhaps describe as a women problem, but part of the difficulty with repealing the Eighth Amendment is what do you replace it with in terms of a legislative framework? And that's even when you look just yesterday at the, um, at the, uh, the data, the survey that came out even from Newstalk FM when the Pat Kenny programme produced its survey, is that there is, we just can't assume that even if there wasn't a man problem, as you pose it, that there wouldn't be a problem with women themselves. Yeah, so the man problem, the, the title is intentionally provocative. It's supposed to play on, in the 40s and the 50s, uh, there was a common discourse of the woman problem, which reacted to women uh, post-World War II taking on jobs in public life. So we thought it was a nice inversion. Um, but yes, of course, women can also be sexist. Women can also oppose uh, reproductive choices for other women. Um, and that is because we all live in patriarchy. We all grow up in a society, as we pointed out in our talk, we've all been conditioned since birth to associate authority with masculinity. We have all been conditioned to listen when men speak. And uh, it would seem to me overwhelmingly apparent that that fact is related to our incredibly poor, uh, our incredibly poor record on reproductive rights in this country. And I do think it's important to talk about male domination of public discourse. I think if we continue to pussyfoot around it, we're not going to change it, and we're certainly not going to uh, listen to women, which is what we were trying to make people do here today. Um, Susan, you've set a precedent here today, speaking about your own experience. Obviously, what we've uh, witnessed in recent months and years is many more women um, coming forward to describe all um, their many um, and varied experiences. But 
What about if the, the voice of men? Because it seems to me that men are emerging um, just as uh, straight people did emerge as allies for, for the gay community in the marriage referendum, that men are also coming forward as allies. Do you think it is right to characterise them and pose them as a problem when they in fact could be helping women in the situations that they find themselves in? Well, absolutely men can be allies, but I think the issue here is that, I mean, it's, it's quite simple, it's like women get pregnant, listen to women on this issue talk to women. And the more people who tell their stories, I think, the better. I mean, the fact that, I mean, when I read Roshi Ningle and Tara Flynn's pieces in the Irish Times, I'd, written, I'd already written about my experience, and I had been thinking about whether or not I was going to kind of go public with that. It was only a kind of a tiny thought in my mind, and when I read those pieces, I thought, this is possible, I can do this. And that was, kind of, that was a revelation to me. So... I think the most important thing here is that women feel comfortable enough to be able to talk about this. Yeah, um, and like I think the question that's been asked is a bit of a not all men question. I'm sure some of you will be like uh, familiar with that internet meme that every time you try to talk about women's issues or you say like, you know, s men do this, uh, someone pops up and says, not all men do that. And we know not all men do that, but we still need to be able to talk about demographics and power in our society without being told to shut up or that it doesn't matter or that we might offend men and then they won't be our allies. Like we need to be able to name this problem because if 84% of the people in a position to decide whether or not we have a referendum on the 8th are men, there is a problem. Okay, well, what if you removed men from the equation altogether? What would an all-female legislative framework look like? Like, what would, what would... Well, first of all, that's like a science fiction question, and nobody no, wants... No, but it's, you, you, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're posing the not all men. Yeah. I just think that this encapsulates the difficulty because I think it is a broader societal issue and there is a value placed um, on human life. And I think that one of the reasons why Ireland, and not just Ireland, because countries all over the world are struggling with it, is because we have a very, very clunky, very, very bad um, legal framework at present, but what do we replace it with? And I think that is just the possibility where perhaps we need to look at the inclusion of broader voices, because it certainly helped in, in, in other debates. Can I just come in there and talk about my experience of it being, living in Canada, where it's free, legal, covered by my health care, and when I talk to people about this there, they're just like, what is the problem? What? So is the solution, and you've done it here today and done it so, so powerfully, is the solution more voices? And should women have to publicise their experience in order to, to, to change the situation? Well, I don't think women should have to publicize their experiences, but like, in this current context, I feel like we, some of us have to, because there's such shame, there's such stigma around us in Ireland. I mean, at the time, I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone. And like, preparing for this, I've had lots of, kind of difficult conversations that actually turned out not to be difficult at all once I started talking about it. But the fact that no one talks about it, that's one of the problems. Well, we have no time, I'm afraid. Um, what I will say is that uh, to pay credit to the Abbey, to the curators, to you here today, because I think one of the things we don't do particularly very well in Ireland is have difficult conversations. Uh, our performers here today, Susan and Emer, have done an extraordinary, made an extraordinary contribution to that debate. And on my behalf and yours, I'd like to thank them and thank you for listening.